It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the U.S.? Norway. If you were watching this year's Super Bowl in America, you might remember this General Motors ad featuring the comic Will Ferrell. And it's true, when it comes to electric vehicles on the road, no country comes close to Norway. Keenan, Norway's out EVing us. Wait, what's this? Oh, it's my daughter's birthday. She's really a pirate. I don't lately. care. Grab an EV, meet me in Norway. Okay, can I say goodbye to my family? Nope. Right. This year, more than 80% of its new car sales were electric. Aquafina, sorry to disturb you, but Norway's beaten us at EVs. Nuh-uh. Uh-huh. Nuh-uh. Uh-huh. Meet me there in an hour. Can I ride with you? No! But the rest of the world is racing to catch up. EV sales are expected to be 30% of all new cars sold by 2030. But with all this demand comes supply constraints. Most notably in the form of a shortage of batteries that power these cars. Could the electric vehicle boom go bust before it really even gets going? Where are you guys? We're in Finland. Where are you? I'm in Norway. Norway? You're in Sweden. Damn it! You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And in today's show... The switch to electric vehicles. First, we'll hear from Peter Carlson, the chief executive of Northvolt, one of Europe's biggest battery manufacturers. We'll talk about how tricky it can be to ramp up production. It is incredibly difficult to build this setup. I mean, this is a little bit like manufacturing Formula One. Then we'll ask Bob Holycross, Ford's head of sustainability, about how the carmaker is trying to make its electric vision catch up to reality. It's literally, as Jim Farley and Bill Ford have called it, our, our CEO and, and chairman, a refounding of the company. We will discuss what could help ease those battery supply constraints. The main things you need are nickel, cobalt and lithium. And each of these has their own sort of particular problems. And ask whether that will be enough for EVs to rule the roads. Hey, Mike and Sumaya. Hey, Alice. Hey, Alice. Excited to be in the studio together. Me too. So have either of you ever actually driven an electric car? Um, I have. Not for very long. Uh, The places I've been driving cars in the past few years in Asia are uh, mostly not yet at the forefront of the energy transition. Let's put it that way. Well, you're doing better than me. Uh, I haven't actually ever driven an electric vehicle, mainly because my marriage is so far one successful campaign for us not to own a car. And last time we looked into it, long, long waiting lists for electric vehicles were just really helping my side of the campaign. 
I think that makes us just one for three. I also haven't driven an EV or sort of any kind of car for a long time because I actually cannot drive. I know how to drive, but I can't legally drive a vehicle in America until I sit my uh, road skills test, which does make it somewhat ironic that I'm uh, taking the wheel for this episode. But uh, by the time I get around to driving again, we will probably all be driving electric vehicles. Last week, California voted to ban the sale of petrol cars by 2035. With the phasing out of new sales of internal combustion engine vehicles, This could well be the final set of major criteria pollutant emission standards for new light-duty conventional vehicles. I just really want to thank all of the hard work that went in to building this package and working with stakeholders and putting together something that is uh, world-changing. That could lead to at least a dozen other American states following suit. Yeah, I would like to point out that America is a laggard here. The European Parliament voted in June for a ban of sales of petrol and diesel cars by 2035. And at least eight European countries already have similar or even more stringent targets, though none of them are actually yet law. Here in Britain, for example, the government has vowed to end the sale of petrol and diesel-powered cars by 2030, and uh, places including Japan are also aiming for a ban by 2035. So Norway is a real forerunner here. They're really ahead of the curve. Though it's aimed to ban petrol cars by 2025, it looks like in terms of sales, that target might be reached even earlier. And all of that should be great news for the environment and efforts to reduce carbon emissions. But there is one big problem, batteries. Absolutely. To keep up with the various incentives and laws, electric car makers are going to need to manufacture significantly more EVs than they currently do. The main capacity constraint is a limited number of battery factories supplying those car makers right now. And this is something that our colleague Simon Wright has spent a few months reporting on for a piece in the paper. So I want to bring him in now. Simon, hello. Welcome to Money Talks. Hello, Alice. How uh, How many electric cars have you driven in your time? Well, quite a few, as a matter of fact. I think it's really important if you're uh, covering the car industry to understand what the products are doing, and particularly the transformation to electric vehicles means that these are very different from internal combustion engine cars. So I think it's quite important to get behind the wheel as often as possible. But uh, you don't own any of your own yet, just driven them? Um, No, my car is an internal combustion engine, but I suspect that the next car I buy will probably be electric. You and perhaps, you know, everyone else. Until then, you've been looking into electric vehicles for some time, and there are some pretty serious efforts underway at the moment. Incentives, you know, bans on internal combustion engine car sales in the future to try and encourage people to own and drive EVs instead of internal combustion engine cars. So how big is the shift going to be, do you think? Well, you know, in several years' time, it's going to be enormous. At the moment, EVs are around 10% of global vehicle sales. By 2030, It could be 40%, it could be more. What that means, depending on who you ask, is you're going to need an awful lot of batteries to power those electric vehicles somewhere between 2,700 and 4,000 gigawatt hours, and that's a lot of batteries. And that's caused a frenzy in almost every corner of the globe trying to build enough capacity to manufacture those batteries. Now, on paper, things look like they're progressing fairly well. There's going to be 282 new gigafactories should come online worldwide by 2031. But when you look a bit deeper... There are certain problems, not only with the production of batteries, but with accessing the raw materials and minerals needed to build those batteries. You focused in on that question pretty immediately on on batteries and, and battery supply chains. Do you think that batteries are potentially the sort of binding constraint on, you know, ambitious goals to adopt electric vehicles? 
Look, absolutely. Much of the rest of the car remains similar, sort of braking systems, seats, the metal it's made out of. But the batteries are central to all of this. And batteries are the main cost of an electric car. 40% of the final cost could be in the battery, though that price has been coming down. So the batteries are the key to the transition to electric motoring. Got it. So, you know, given that they're the big question mark, I guess, looming over whether we can all all drive EVs, should we break down the different bits of the, the battery supply chain and, and see where the problems are? So, you know, let's start at the top with the inputs. What raw materials do you need to make batteries and, and do we have enough of them? The main things you need are nickel, cobalt and lithium. And each of these has their own sort of particular problems. With nickel, it's the high quality stuff that doesn't cause lots of emissions itself. Indonesia is really sort of increasing its nickel production capacity. But that sort of nickel requires smelting twice, which, you you know, causes a lot of uh, emissions, which sort of defeats the object. Cobalt is another pinch point. And the next question is lithium. Price has spiked by four times as much as it was in early 2021. New mines are coming on stream, but these are mostly lower-grade projects that require a lot of refining. And the other thing is, a lot of the mines have been tied up by China, which still remains the sort of central power in battery manufacture. So clearly there are some problems, you know, getting enough of those inputs. But if there's sort of a big spike in demand for these metals, won't the big mining companies respond by, you know, building new mines or, or producing more of them? You'd hope so. But actually, there are a lot of problems there as well. Building mines can take anywhere between five and 25 years between the planning stage and actually digging things out the ground and supplying them to battery makers, for example. Moreover, the big miners are reluctant to enter the business. The market for green metals, it's growing, but it's not terribly big. And they see it as being too small to be worth the hassle at the moment. Okay, so some issues getting the inputs. What about the next step? Refining. You mentioned that a lot of the refining takes place in China. Is that a problem for for car makers? Well, absolutely. If the West's EV industry somehow managed to get enough metals and battery making capacity, it would still face an enormous problem in the sort of ignored middle bit of the supply chain, which is refining, where China enjoys near monopolies. Chinese companies refine nearly 70% of the world's lithium, 84% of its nickel and 85% of its cobalt. Trafigura, a big trading company, forecasts that the shares for the last two of these will remain above 75% for at least the next five years. So is anyone doing anything to sort of help mitigate some of these supply chain problems like policymakers? Yes, there is something happening. Last year, Joe Biden unveiled a blueprint for a domestic battery supply chain. His huge infrastructure law passed in 2021 set aside $3 billion for battery making, which is not a great deal of money in the general scheme of things, but it's something. The Inflation Reduction Act, which signed into law in August, also includes sweetness for the industry. So long as the ores, refined materials and components come from American allied countries, that's the way that Americans will get subsidies for their EVs. The EU, which created the Battery Alliance in 2017 to coordinate public and private efforts, says $127 billion was invested last year across the supply chain, with another $382 billion expected by 2030. And most of this is likely to land downstream, helping the West become self-sufficient in the production finished cells at least. But again, you know, the big problems will remain with the minerals and ores required. Okay, so... Plenty of challenges to tackle there, and we are going to move on from the inputs and refining to speak with uh, Peter Carlson, who's the CEO of Northvolt, a battery manufacturing startup, about actually sort of building the factories that make those batteries. But we will uh, hear from you again at the end of the show for your sense of what all of this means for electric vehicle adoption. So 
Uh, idle your engine for now, Simon. Okay, I'll park up for now. So I now want to turn to the actual making of these batteries with Peter. He founded Northvolt in Sweden in 2016 after he left Tesla. Northvolt specialises in lithium-ion batteries and has several deals with car makers like Volkswagen and Volvo. Peter Carlson, welcome to Money Talks. How are you doing? Fine. Uh, happy to be here. Late last year, Northvolt delivered its first battery sales to customers like car makers, and you now have over $50 billion worth of orders in for your batteries. Just how difficult was it to build this battery company in Europe? It is incredibly difficult to build this uh, setup, both because they're very, very complex. I mean, this is a little bit like manufacturing Formula One, where uh, if you look at cell manufacturing, it's it's like almost combining semiconductor industry with food and beverage and, and the type of scale. And the experience of building these types of setups, both in terms of setting them up and running them, but also, you know, how do you design them? How do you build them? Was very, very limited in uh, Europe. So, you know, we need to bring in uh, skill sets from all over the world to, to help us define this. And obviously, when you're building something the first time, you make a, a lot of mistakes. But we also learned a lot through this journey. We first built a, a smaller setup uh, outside uh, Stockholm, which we called the, the labs. Uh, got it up and running over the last two years. We learned a lot by doing that. We've spent roughly 500 million euros now in that setup. And then we took a lot of these learnings and scaled it up. And we're now ramping up that uh, factory setup that we have in, in northern Sweden while we're working on the infrastructure for several other factories. Looking back in hindsight now, it seems as though the whole world has sort of caught up to the idea that EVs in particular are sort of the future of of personal transportation and you're going to need an awful lot of batteries to power them all. And so a lot of incentives and targets have been put in place that are sort of pushing people towards that world. So it looks now like you were kind of pushing on on an open door. But why did everyone sort of come around to the idea that a lot of battery manufacturing capacity in Europe was probably a, a good idea. In the beginning, when we went down to Brussels and we, when we went to the big stakeholders, the big you know, consumers of batteries in Europe, it was not obvious that we could be competitive. But everybody realized that if this transition is going to happen, it would be a really profound change of an entire industry setup, basically replacing a majority of the combustion engines, and this is not just in vehicles, it's in diesel generators. Uh, you know, if you start to think everywhere where you have a combustion engine, it's everywhere. So it was pretty clear that this is a new industry forming. It's going to grow substantially. And whether Europe, in this case, would have its own ecosystem or would be dependent on importing a majority of these volumes from uh, other regions, it would also have a a really, really significant impact on both jobs and economic growth and technological uh, competitive advantage. So the realization of of the importance of building this, this ecosystem came pretty soon. Okay, the importance of it might have been clear, but how did politicians and people in the industry you spoke with think about their role in creating a homegrown ecosystem? 
you know, they formed what they called the, the Battery Alliance within the European Union. We, I think we were 13 companies at the first meeting. Today, it's like 500 companies. And they were asking us, what are the most important things that we can do to enable this to become also a regional ecosystem. And I must say, they listened to us and they really, really tried to take tangible actions to make it happen. And now when you look at the world, it seems trivial, but but it was important uh, steps. And you now see in the U.S. the latest bill from the Biden administration, it's enormous incentives that is now being pumped in to creating this ecosystem in in the U.S. And it's also becoming about not losing a, a technological advantage between regions here. You mentioned the importance of having some capacity to build batteries in Europe. Does that matter also in terms of making sure that you're sort of building those batteries in a way that is is clean and not polluting? I know that a lot of the sort of manufacturing capacity at present is in China. And how do the batteries that you're producing compare to the ones that are made uh, in places like China? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. If you analyze the whole battery and value chain and where the majority of the volumes comes today, a lot of different life cycle analysis tells us that, you know, a kilowatt hour of a battery comes with almost 150 kg of CO2 carbon footprint. If we extrapolate that and basically say, okay, we believe that the entire car industry, 90 million vehicles, will evolve into electrification, and we just use the current supply chains to do that, then we are basically creating a new carbon footprint the size of half Germany's. That is you know, very much defying the purpose why we are doing this transition to get out of oil. And what we are trying to show and are really driving is that there is another way of doing this. So our aspiration that we put and that we're working very, very hard on is basically to compare that that 150 kg that goes today. We're taking away half of that already by starting a factory in the right energy grid. Then the rest of it we're working through with, with smart supply chain, recycling. And the aspiration here is by 2030, we should be down on around 10 kg per kilowatt hour in carbon footprint. And that really makes a difference. As much as you're working as much as you can on making your part of the battery manufacturing process as sort of green as possible, obviously, you have to use a lot of inputs to make batteries like lithium, cobalt, nickel, etc. How confident are you that you can sort of get enough that you need to meet your production goals and that those metals are mined as environmentally friendly as they possibly can be? We have secured the contracts and, and the capacities that we need for the first phase, and we're now working on the next phase. It is important that while we're you know, scaling up ourselves, we're also really working hard to enable a regionalized uh, supply chain. We start with an industry that is, and with suppliers that are all over the world, and, and we will also have to import a number of components as, as a starting point. But we are then working with localization plans and scale-up plans, including also engaging ourselves in making this supply chain happen. We, we announced 
early this year that we're forming a, a joint venture together with Galp in Portugal to start a European lithium processing plant in order to enable also uh, lithium hydroxide processing in a very sustainable way in Europe. So this is a step-by-step uh, approach that will take several years, but it's very coherent with that strategy of bringing the ecosystem closer to us and bringing it in a sustainable way. I can't let you go from our episode without asking you what car you drive. I note that you chipped your first EV battery at the end of, of 2021. So maybe it's a bit too soon to hope that you have a North Vault battery nestled inside of your, your EV. But do you drive an EV? What do you drive? I, yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, given my, my background, I have a, a Tesla Roadster that I nurture. Then on, on a day-to-day basis, I drive an Audi e-tron given that we have a certain amount of order book with <laughs> with uh, them as a, as, a, as a customer, but, but not yet with a Norfolk battery, but it's coming. Peter Carlson, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Now, after the break, we're going to hear from Ford about getting those batteries into its cars and what the EV boom looks like from their perspective. But before that... It's the time in the show where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. We've got tons more reporting looking at the EV boom from all angles. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our subscriber only newsletters like Money Talks or The Bottom Line. They're available at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. So, Mike and Sumeya, we've looked at the scale of the EV boom and looked at the supply chain from the raw inputs to the refining and the building of battery factories. The last part in the sequence is, of course, the actual building of the EVs to sell to consumers. And to get a better sense of what that looks like, I spoke with Ford's head of sustainability. Bob Hollycross, welcome to Money Talks. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Alice. Just briefly for our listeners that aren't motorheads, could you lay out where Ford is now? So what kinds of electric vehicles do you currently sell and what do you have planned for the future? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we are in a a really interesting turning point in our product portfolio and our electrification journey. And what we're doing first and foremost, which is different than other strategy, is we're electrifying the brands within Ford that people recognize globally the most. So when you look at Vehicles like our Mustang performance sports car, we've electrified that vehicle. Most recently, we introduced our all-electric F-150 Lightning, which is uh, off the platform of what has been, you know, America's best-selling vehicle for 40-plus years running the F-Series pickup franchise. And then the third vehicle that we have uh, on the market today is our commercial transit van, And, you know, as we continue to invest in the capacity for 
additional electric vehicles, working our way towards 600,000 units of global capacity by the end of 2023, uh, upwards of 2 million vehicle capacity by 2026. We're moving aggressively. So let's talk now about what it's going to take for you to be able to deliver this many cars uh, for customers. So I think Ford recently announced that it's already sourced uh, about 70% of the capacity it needs to sort of make enough batteries to hit that that 2 million vehicle target. You recently struck a deal with SK Innovation to build some battery factories in America, one in Tennessee, two in Kentucky, and a deal with the Chinese battery giant CATL to import its batteries. So I guess how confident are you in that supply of batteries panning out? And where do you expect the sort of other 30% to come from as well? Yeah, I mean, like, as you mentioned, a significant portion of of what we've talked about in terms of of our capacity, we do have plans in place for and and are continuing in real time to work through, you know, different partnerships and opportunities. Um, It is going to take a lot more domestic supply, especially here in the U.S., to be able to make batteries and, and to get the kinds of materials produced here that, you know, we're dependent upon certain regions of the world today. Uh, we're going to have to continue to utilize all available uh, resources. So you mentioned a, a couple of things there. One was the emphasis on domestic supply, not being too reliant on sort of one geography for your supply chain. I mean, one of the things that we heard about earlier in the show is that about 80% of the refining capacity for battery inputs is is in China. And it doesn't seem like that's necessarily going to shift very easily. So what do you make of China's role in supply chains and you know battery supply chains in particular and, and does that concern you? Well, I mean any aspect of what it takes to to you know design, develop and produce vehicles, any overdependence upon one particular area it certainly raises flags in a number of respects. Now that being said, obviously being a global company and, and with uh, the, the market in China and our operations there and and different opportunities we can have to partner with firms, uh, we're going to have to continue to look at all available options. Um, but all that being said, that serves as a starting point, but making sure we've got sufficient diversity of supply and capacity, especially in North America and the U.S. in particular, is so critical. And, and that's why we're continuing to advocate for the kind of policies that have been more recently developed when we look at you know, the Transportation Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other measures. And what does Ford make of the news about the California law, which would ban sales of petrol cars by 2035? You know, as Ford, we're proud of the work that we've done with the state of California. We partnered with them on greenhouse gas emission standards in the past administration here in the U.S. when climate change and and vehicle standards were under attack. And so by taking the position that we have and and being aligned with whether it's the, the state of California or other states in the U.S., our federal government, governments around the world, we need to move the conversation forward beyond just the vehicle standards themselves. When you look at, I guess, you know, similar kinds of targets or, or policies globally, I mean, America is in some ways a little bit behind the curve here. Europe has put a lot of these similar you know, policies in place as well. And Ford has announced some pretty ambitious plans to increase its EV sales in Europe as well. So are there any you know, unique issues in terms of either sourcing batteries or changing manufacturing process in Europe as well? How does it compare with the US? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, in some cases, the policies in Europe have been more 
uh, out front, but um, the market dynamics are different and, you know, the overall infrastructure requires uh, some unique solutions. So when you look at where people reside and, and, and the needs they're going to have for charging infrastructure, for instance, in the densely populated cities where single unit charging solutions may not be uh, as readily available, you have multi-unit uh, dwellings, uh, you know, unique infrastructure needs in terms of the broader transportation network in Europe. Um, there's a lot of work that has to be done there. Electric vehicles are still, the sticker prices is more expensive than than traditional sort of petrol cars. Now, we've talked a bit about some of the incentives the government have put in place to sort of bring that sticker price down for consumers. But you're starting to hear from some of the countries that have led the way on the sort of EV boom, like Norway, that perhaps eventually those sort of incentives will have to be phased out. Do you foresee a world in which EVs can be competitively priced with petrol cars without incentives, or, or will those always be necessary? Do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think that's that's what we're gonna uh, we're gonna see how all this plays out. I mean, certainly in the short to medium term, as we talked about, it is going to be necessary. And then, as we would expect, as then we start to get to the kind of scale that we're talking about, and you know, whether it's uh, half of our production or more by twenty thirty. And with that kind of scale, seeing prices come down, yes, you would expect that the need for the level of incentives that are required today would start to come down. The challenge is there are any number of things that can happen along the way, geopolitically or otherwise. But I think with the right crafted policies, we can put the right provisions in place that kind of monitor along the way and, and, and check to see you know, how we're performing overall because it is going to be so key if, if we're going to make electric vehicles accessible and affordable for the widest array of consumers that a brand like Ford can reach. The whole equation around equity and uh, accessibility is going to be so key. Um, we're going to have to keep, I was going to say our foot on the gas, but uh, uh, our foot on the accelerator, so to speak, on all these policies to make sure the scale of these benefits are reaching everyone. And for a company like Ford, nearly 120 years old, we were on the forefront of that initial mobility revolution, and we very much see the same thing here. It's literally, as you know, Jim Farley and Bill Ford have called it, our, our CEO and, and chairman, a refounding of the company. Well, I can't let you go without asking you what you drive. So, uh, so what is it, Bob? What do you drive? Yes. So, I, well, I, we could go on for, for all kinds of time now, but I'm currently driving an F-150 Lightning, our all-electric pickup. Uh, but the most fun that I have with the, uh, the the Lightning pickup is, you know, is the people that come up to the vehicle, you know, want to check it out and are just amazed that it really is the F-150 uh, with everything that they're used to. Except also when you you pop the hood or the front of the vehicle, all this extra storage capacity and what we call the frunk. The frunk. That's an excellent, excellent word. Oh, I'll have to start, uh, have to start using that. Maybe when <laughs> I get my own EV. Bob, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you, Alice. It was my pleasure. Okay, so I now want to bring Simon back in. It strikes me that there are a lot of challenges but there's also a lot of enthusiasm from manufacturers to solve them and a lot of enthusiasm from customers to actually sort of buy electric vehicles. So when you think about all of the challenges in the building of these EVs, are they just the regular growing pains of, of scaling up an industry from, from niche to mainstream or, or are they bigger than that? 
Well, I think it's more complicated than that because we've got two sets of actors here. We've got the established car industry who, you know, are going through the painful transition from the internal combustion engine to producing electric vehicles. And we've got the newcomers, Tesla and the companies following on Tesla's coattails, which don't have that legacy, but will have to, you know, invest an awful lot of money in order to get the scale to be true challengers in the industry. But all told, if you look at the numbers, something like half a trillion dollars are likely to be invested by 2030 in electric vehicles by the car makers. And I guess the big question here is, the reason everyone's pushing EV adoption is that they're supposed to be much more environmentally friendly than internal combustion cars. So how long will we have to wait to see the impact of consumers switching to EVs driving down climate emissions? Well, it's a good question. Look, one way of answering that is to look at the penetration of EVs. By some forecasts, by 2040, half the cars on the world's roads will be electric vehicles. But that means the other half will still be internal combustion engine cars. If every single car today sold was an EV, in 10 years' time, still only half the cars on the road would be EVs. So it's going to take a while, but it's coming, and we should look forward to it. Wonderful. Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining Money Talks, and uh, I look forward to uh, riding in an EV with you one day soon. Let's set a date. So, Mike, Simea, what do you make of the EV boom? So we seem to make shortages a recurring topic on Money Talks. And obviously, there's more than enough of them to go around at the moment. If you've been an automaker this year, you've been facing both the supply chain issues around batteries and the chip shortage as well, the semiconductor chip shortage. We've already seen that shortage easing a little bit. Over the past few weeks, you've heard various bits of news coming from the main semiconductor manufacturers about they're seeing somewhat less demand pressure than they were. There's been all sorts of innovative ways to get around it, all sorts of ramping up of production. And I guess I feel more optimistic about the whole thing uh, with battery production, because in these periods of really acute shortage, as bad as they are at the time, they seem to be a sort of quite fruitful spur for innovation. And it would be a rare, nice bit of news for Money Talks if that was the uh, outcome here. Yeah, okay. So Mike is the glass half full man. I'm the glass half empty woman. I suppose I am a little bit more gloomy, perhaps because historically I've looked at this from a trade perspective. When you've got what lots of governments see as a strategically important industry and everyone is trying to grab a slice, there is just lots of scope for things to go wrong. There's lots of scope for wasteful subsidies as everyone's trying to attract the companies to their shores. And there's lots of scope for tensions as governments are trying to make sure that production happens on their turf and not someone else's. And that someone else can get annoyed and and that could lead to trade tensions. When thinking about subsidies, though, one of the things you might normally worry about would be that governments would spray cash at production and you would end up with huge amounts of oversupply. In this case, at least in the short term, it doesn't seem like that's going to be too much of a risk just because demand for these electric vehicles is just so extraordinary. But yeah, really worth not understating the size of these potential battles coming up. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I guess where I come down is sort of maybe in the middle of of you and Mike in that I too see the battery shortage stories hitting a lot of the same notes as shortage stories elsewhere. But at the same time, it does seem as though car manufacturers, governments, everyone is extremely committed to making this sort of electric vehicle transition happen. You know, no one thinks that 
the problems that we're seeing now are going to prevent this sort of transition from happening. And ultimately, even if there are some bumps along the road, that is sort of a good destination to end up at because it's so important for emissions and the climate transition that we pull it off. So I see both your perspectives, but maybe I I am more of an optimist as well. On that optimistic note, we promised to do cheerful stats this week. So who has a, a happy number for me? I'll go first. My stat is 1%. Now, if you think about a traditional car, it's got something called an ice drive train, which is an engine, a gearbox and transmission. And that might have around 2,000 moving parts. If you think about an electric vehicle, the equivalent for that has about 20 parts, so 1% of the number of moving parts. That obviously introduces huge scope for efficiencies, simplifying supply chains, although it does throw up huge questions about what's going to happen to all the workers in those older supply chains. This doesn't mean I'm going to have to learn how to fix a car, does it? Because my current excuse is that it's all too complicated. Too many moving parts, so I I can't possibly learn. Well, as as a car expert that does not own a car, sure. Great. Good news. I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I've got your approval. My statistic this week, I suppose, is either an optimistic one, a nice stat or a slightly more depressing one, depending on how you look at it. But it's, it's, it's a nice one for me. I was reminded of this uh, because there's been a lot of discussion after the death of Mikhail Gorbachev about the, the end of the Soviet Union. And I was reminded of one of my favorite pictures, which I, I think for, for somebody who works The Economist is appropriate, which is the, the queue outside of the first McDonald's opening in the Soviet Union. And the first McDonald's that opened in Moscow, uh, I believe in 1990, sold 34,000 burgers on the first day, which was more than three times as many as any new McDonald's had sold on its first day up until then. This is definitely the second stat we've had on McDonald's openings in Russia. I swear I used this as my stat in our Russia episode. But, uh, you know, it really was a remarkable day. So maybe two Russian McDonald's stats is appropriate for one economics podcast. I will do my stat now, which is not optimistic, but I guess it is amusing. It's 20,356 swimming pools, which is the number of swimming pools that French tax authorities have discovered using an AI algorithm built for them by Google. So when you build a swimming pool in France, you're supposed to report it to the tax authorities within 90 days so that they can start sort of charging you extra property tax. And they discovered more than 20,000 illicit swimming pools using AI software. And those people have all been sent tax bills. That is just a very on-brand piece of French innovation, right? Making the regulatory and tax structure slightly more effective. Uh, that is that is extremely on-brand, yeah. I know how we can use technology. Bureaucracy, exactly. the French way. <laughs> exactly, it's brilliant. On that note, our thanks this week go to Peter Carlson and Bob Hollycross. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us sending any statistics just to me at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Sam Westron. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our editor is Kim Gittleson. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.